I the last lie I told was forty four years ago. Uh, the last lie I told was probably during this podcast. <laughs> Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. This and this is Pod at Mercy. Well, um, I appreciate you coming and doing this. I think it's going to be helpful for... It's helpful for me more than anything. Podcast is totally a selfish endeavor. Is that right? Yes. You only I, get things that interest you. I, I only invite people I want to learn from or people that I help me understand things better. So, yeah. I'm happy to be here, No, John. Thanks the, the, for the invitation. Well, thanks. So this is Bishop Scott Jones, who's the bishop of the Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church. And um, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself I think most folks that uh, will be listening to this will know you. This is, I, I will say too, before we get started, we, the podcast aims at really a wide group of people and a lot of people that are not necessarily churched folk. Today, though, is going to be deep in the United Methodist um, weeds. So some of those folks are going to tune me out. Yeah, I, 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 would, think I so. would actually encourage people that if you're not into the depth of like denominational uh, difficulty and squabble, just go back to the one last week with Todd Bolsinger, and that, that'll be better. That would be my encouragement. But more tell, spiritually uplifting. More spiritually uplifting. I so get, tell everybody it. a little bit about yourself, what's going on in your life these days, your family, and all that good stuff. Well, I'm a fourth-generation Methodist preacher, but my father moved around. So when people ask, where are you from, the answer is, I don't know. Born in Tennessee, grade school in Illinois, where they gave me speech lessons, uh, then junior high in Indiana, I can sing you the Indiana State song if you would like, but I don't I, I didn't recommend know they it. had a state song, but thank they you. They do. Back home again in Indiana, it's called. Then high school in Denver, went to the University of Kansas chasing a girl. That didn't work out. I met Mary Lou the next year. That did work out. She knows where she's from, north central Kansas. Uh, was a professor for 20 years, either part-time or full-time at Perkins School of Theology. During 11 of those years, I was a pastor, then seven years full-time on the faculty, and then I've been a bishop for 17 and a half years. It's too long for anybody. I, wow. I, when I think that it's really more than half my ministry, I'm thinking, oh my gosh. But um, was in Kansas for 12 years. Uh, the last four I had in Nebraska as well. And then in 2016, the committee came out of the room and said, you're moving to Houston. And like any good Methodist preacher being told where to go, I said, thank you. And we moved. So uh, I've loved Houston. It's a great place to live. It is a great place to live. I love it, too. I, I miss some things about Georgia, but I love Texas. Texas is a really special place. And Houston's a great town, too. Um, you love Kansas basketball. It's March Madness. We're a number one seed. Uh, the only question is, do I try to get tickets to the game uh, Saturday? But I think it's not going to happen. All right, so we're officially throwing it out there. Anyone who has tickets to the Kansas game, the bishop, you can score points with the bishop. You can. Actually, the Saturday game is assuming we win Thursday night. But You're going to win Thursday night. I think so. So Jay Billis on ESPN says that Kansas is going to make it all the way to the Final Four. Did he really? But they're going to lose to Arizona, unless ah. unless Arizona's hurt, he said. Well, I haven't filled up my bracket yet. So um, Yeah, you got till tomorrow or something like so. that? I think so, something yeah. like that. We do a family competition because my wife is a fourth-generation Jayhawk. She made sure all of our kids went to Kansas, so it's a Kansas so thing she gonna in the family. So is she going to pick someone besides Kansas to win the whole never thing? Does, never does, never does. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's, that's what, you know, good. You, I was at their final game at Allen Fieldhouse a week ago. 
Saturday, whenever it was. Uh, no, just last Saturday. Uh, great, great venue. The, the Cathedral of College Basketball. Now, North Carolina and Duke and some others might want to argue with you. The only losing <clears throat> coach we ever had is Dr. Naismith, who invented the game. Talking points for Kansas Jayhawk basketball fans. There He's you got go. you've got your you've got your propaganda already worked out. So I, you know, it's a thing in my family. Hey, it's okay. I think that's okay. It's like uh, what do they say? Like your sports teams are like your children. You can have more than one, but you have to pick a favorite. Well, there are family <laughs> conflicts here. There are family conflicts here. My son is a Jayhawk. He married a Baylor girl. Oh. They had a deal worked out because Baylor was always good in football and not basketball. Now that Baylor's now a basketball good. team, it's high conflict time. So Oh, uh, I know. They were difficult. just they just played uh well not a couple of weeks ago, whenever no, it was not that long ago. Baylor, I think, came out on top. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry to remind you of that, but I don't I don't worry about um, other sports, but basketball is our time. Well, good. Well, this is a good time of the year for you. It is. So you can block out Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and watch basketball. All right. So we're gonna talk about the United Methodist Church. You don't really ever talk about the United Methodist Church much. Welcome to my world, Brother Stevens. (laughs) All right, so I think what would be helpful for people who may not be deep into all of this stuff, uh, what what would be your little two or three minute recap of where are we now, what's the current situation, how did we get here uh, from your perspective? Well, the United Methodist Church has a governing body called a General Conference that's made up of delegates, lay and clergy, elected by annual conferences all over the world. We are one of the only worldwide Christian denominations there is. By that, I mean we have churches and bishops on four continents, uh, which makes us different than the Presbyterians or the Episcopalians, for example. Uh, That governing body is supposed to meet once every four years, and it determines our doctrine and the rules that we live by as a church. As a bishop, uh, I don't get to make the rules. My job is to uphold and enforce them. Uh, The rules are made by the General Conference in a document called our Book of Discipline. Well, beginning in 1972, we began having discussions and teaching about the practice of homosexuality. Uh, Our church's teaching has been pretty consistent for the last 50 years. Uh, We have said that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Uh, That's been strengthened over time to say our clergy should not do same-gender marriages and that self-avowed practicing uh, homosexual persons should not be ordained or appointed. With the advent of legalized same-gender marriage, uh, things changed in American culture. And the number of uh, United Methodists who believe that uh, their clergy ought to be doing same-gender weddings and we ought to be ordaining uh, practicing homosexual persons, uh, well, that, that shifted. At the same time, a number of leaders in our church, bishops and pastors and annual conference boards of ordained ministry, began acting out in defiance of the Book of Discipline. Uh, That defiance broke their ordination vows and consecration vows, but they felt compelled by concerns of justice, uh, as well as reaching out to a more progressive uh, slice of American culture to uh, vote for that. 
In 2019, there was a special session of the General Conference hoping to resolve this issue, and they voted narrowly to enforce the traditional teaching. Well, that just made a lot of people mad. And so the elections for General Conference in 2020 uh, tended to be more progressive. But unfortunately, in March of 2020, in fact, today is the 15th. It was March 14th that I shut down my team because of COVID. We, we were at happy hour. On the 16th. On the 16th? Right. You and I go ahead and had a little conversation with a group of us yeah. at a restaurant outdoors. Yes. Um, but that but was we, two days after I had disbanded my team meeting. On the 14th of March, they passed around communion bread person to person yeah. in the morning. That's, we start with communion. And then at noon, one of my district superintendents came to me and said, Bishop, my parents have COVID. I've been exposed. So we dismissed everybody and shut everything down, and they shut down the general conference. So for the last, uh, what is it, two years, we've not been able to meet, and we just learned last week that the general conference has been canceled for 2022. So that's where we are. We've got this long-standing issue that needs resolution and no decision-making body that can meet. Yeah, so I think it's helpful for people that the issue, issues around human sexuality are a big driving force of this. Sometimes you hear people say, oh, it's about much more than that, and there's all these other things. But that's really the driving, that's been the driving rationale for the, the schism or the split, do you think? I think that's one way to characterize it. Uh, whether you obey the discipline as a bishop or as a pastor is another one. Uh, We've had disagreements now for 50 years, but the disobedience factor is what's pushed people over the edge. Yeah. Well, and there's, well, you and I, have, you, I, think it's, I think it's important to say at the beginning of this podcast that you and I uh, have, we know each other pretty well, mm -hmm. uh, enough, well enough to be dangerous about each other. We've met a lot. We've had a lot of conversations. You know me, I'm pretty timid and I have a hard time expressing what I feel about you things. are so shy and retiring. <laughs> I don't know how you preach on Sunday. We, I have a deep respect for you, and but I'm also we we've been we've had some really honest conversations. We have, and you have said you want honesty and transparency as you lead through this. So that's how we're going to go through this today. That makes I think sense. Just like just like if we were eating lunch a couple of weeks ago. Sure. Only and we have this audience out there who's listening to this podcast. So <laughs> we couldn't it's a invite them. Bigger well, than we just couldn't you invite and me. them all to the lunch, but I'm not paying for their lunch. <laughs> You're not paying for them. You bought no, my lunch, and it was delicious. It Thank was, you again, John. It was great lunch, by the way. Um, so, where are you? I mean, in all of this, I mean, the the the, the division, the difficulty. Where do you find yourself if someone said? Bishop Jones, where are you in all this? What's your answer? At this point, my job is to be the leader of the Texas Annual Conference and to lead with fairness and uh, concern for all people. My stated position that I've been at for several years now, I've been saying it publicly for four years, I want to bless every church in my conference, wherever they are on this issue, and to keep the Texas Annual Conference together as much as possible. So my job is to be a leader in that. Let's be clear, John. I'm a fourth-generation Methodist preacher. Watching our church split is breaking my heart. 
we're going to go through a lot of pain the next six to nine months. And I'm just dreading it. My only difference is I'm gifted thinking long term. And I've seen this coming for a while. Well, a lot of us have. I don't know that we knew it was going to all come this year. I think, well, let me take that back. If the general conference had happened, we would have had some way for an amicable split, we assume, for this to happen in a nice, friendly way. But with that being moved, it looks like the split is coming and it's not going to be very friendly. I sure hope we can make it friendly. I want to bless each other. Uh, I, As you know, I'm a John Wesley scholar, and I keep going back and rereading his sermon, Catholic Spirit. If we can't all think alike, can't we love alike? Mm. That's what drives me. Me too. Um, so you, your blog, I, I assume do you still blog? Uh, occasionally. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. Uh, the pandemic kind of killed me on blogging or, or anything. But you, you also uh, are on social media, and you use the blog title and social media um, handle, Extreme Center. Yep. What does that mean? When I was a PhD student trying to think of a way of teaching people about John Wesley's theology, I started off with the phrase, polarities synthesized. Yeah, that's not as good a Twitter handle. It, it didn't work very well. Uh, and then I saw The Economist magazine, which I've subscribed to for 40 years, and it described its position in the political spectrum as extreme center, progressive in some matters, conservative in other matters, and totally opposed to the dead center, which is occupied by most government bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. Well... That's a Schlesinger term. I have been uh, opposed to the dead part of the United Methodist Church. And by holding together things in tension, uh, you occupy the extreme center. So we believe in both evangelism and social justice. We believe in justification and sanctification. We believe in preaching and the sacraments. Uh, a lot of Christian churches make one of those choices and neglect the other. At our very best, we Wesleyans occupy the extreme center. So that's my book uh, on United Methodist Doctrine, which is a textbook in many seminaries, uh, is uh, subtitled The Extreme Center. See, I always like the term radical center. And you and I have talked before about what it means to be centrist. And a lot of people think there's no such things as a centrist, which I take by what you just said about your definition of extreme center you wouldn't believe there's no such thing as a centrist or a center position. If you're holding in tension things that other people see as opposites, yes. then you're a center. And the reason, I use center. The, the reason I use radical center, because the dead center is someone who wants everything to stay the same. So when they throw around these terms institutionalist, see, I don't, I don't like that because I'm not an institutionalist. I really do want to break the institution. Do you? Oh, yeah. We have to. It can't function. The, I mean, United Methodist uh, Book of Discipline is almost, it's, I mean, we can't, like, look at the last couple of years. We can't do anything about, I mean, we can't so function. So do you want to break chapel with United Methodist Church? No, I want, to, I want to reform the organization, the Constitution. I have idealism, but, um, but you, can't be, you can't be filled with illusions. It's got to be rooted in some kind of pragmatic. That's what makes me a centrist. It's got to be rooted. It's idealism and it's realism. You're facing a real context, what it's, you know, what's needed. And you know, I am an institutionalist. 
but I'm interested in institutions that have purpose and that are movemental, so that I want to be the leader of a movemental institution. Institutions are necessary in our existence as human beings. I lead the Texas Annual Conference. I have sworn to uphold the Book of Discipline. Uh, To be a movemental institution is a way of both stating its purpose and aligning its resources so that it's more effective uh, than it has been. When the organization outgrows its mission, when it becomes, when it becomes a monster that is just exists to feed itself, that's what I think when people say institutionalist, they use it in a negative term because it's just there to maintain itself. To yeah. protect itself. One reason, and so it's feeding. That's when I think about the denomination of the United Methodist Church or any organizational or any institution, right? It's grown so big. We've got so many rules. We've added so many things. There's all this constitutional rules and disciplinary rules. Right. And so it's locked in. And so any change or pivot, it's not a nimble institution. Right. I'm interested in being nimble. I tell you, one reason I envy you as a pastor is that within a local church, there's a sense of purpose and direction that you have a lot of influence over. My problem is I go to a ton of meetings, and one consultant told my brother one time, the problem with you Methodists is you think when you've been to a meeting, you've done something. Hmm. Uh, Too many meetings don't have purpose, and they don't really measure their effectiveness on the other side. And I always want to be the leader who is measuring effectiveness and delivering real change in real, uh, really helpful ways. Well, our last conversation, we were talking about what do you, what do you measure now, right? Because we used to measure worship attendance or all these things that we looked at to right. try to, to you know, not not just about attendance. It's certainly not just about membership, but what are the vital indicators that you can look at? Outputs, outcomes that you can say, okay, this is a vital organization or a vital congregation? Well, pre-pandemic, it was worship attendance, financial strength, and missional engagement. Uh, pandemic has thrown a lot of those things into question. Uh, really, the only solid one I have today is financial strength, uh, because a lot of our churches have, in fact, maintained their financial strength while uh, shifting more to online venues for small groups as well as worship. Yeah, I think the missional engagement is a big one, too. But it's certainly not worship attendance. I mean, well, we're not even back. I mean, I don't know of any church that's back at 100% of where they were before. And it's hard to know what it's going to be like. You remember we did that webinar as a conference about the blizzard, the ice storm, mm-hmm. uh, and what would come. And he was dead right. He was saying uh, it's never going to go back to what it used to be. Um, and so... It'll be okay, but I do want to say Chapelwood was amazing during Hurricane Harvey. I remember you and I were out here in your neighborhood looking at the streets and the boats f- driving down the streets to rescue people. It was an know, incredible you know, Shannon time. Shannon reminded me you came to my house and I, I served you alcohol. You did. But it was a sopra pill alcohol <laughs> because my feet had been in that dirty water. You had and, been in the sewage water. You know, <laughs> one way to be good to your bishop is to take care of his wife. Yes. And you knew Mary Lou was all over me about infection because I was in these bare feet standing in the dirty water of the floods. And uh, you pleased Mary Lou deeply that day, well, providing me alcohol. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's shift here. We're going to get a little bit more... Um, We'll pinch down a little bit more here. So you are a bishop. You have to lead as a bishop. And when you look at the roles of a bishop, 
uh, consecrated. Well, now you're consecrated. Uh, people need to understand. You and I are ordained. Yes, both um, elders. Yes, a bishop is not another ordination. It's just a consecration of an office of of an elder. Yeah, except they do it for life, and so it's not really the same. <laughs> it's no, it's it's a curse. <laughs> For life, I can see anybody doing it for maybe two terms, and then you have to like cycle out. One of your roles, though, is defined a passion for the unity of the church. I think you've expressed that, but it says the role of the bishop to shepherd the whole flock and thereby provide leadership toward the goal of understanding, reconciliation, and unity within the church, the United Methodist Church, and the Church Universal. How when you when you're in a, a situation, the seat you are, and you've got people in the conference that want to remain United Methodist and people who want to go be a part of a free Methodists who've been around a long time or some new Methodist that's not formed yet. How do you work with this whole understanding of your commitment as a shepherd of the whole flock with that issue around unity? Well, you have to be realistic, as you said. Um, Sometimes keeping the church together has uh, proven harder than at others. Uh, and so that's why I say to try to keep the Texas Annual Conference together as much as possible. I'm really resisting my congregations who are leaving to be independent, non-denominational. Uh, that's not enhancing the unity of the church, but one has already left, and there are three more in the process of doing just that, despite our best When you arguments. use the term the Texas Annual Conference, um, does that define for you different as the Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church? I mean, when we, when we make our ordination vows, as you said, that we commit to be accountable to the United Methodist Church, its doctrinal standards, its discipline, its authority, accepting the supervision, how... How do you find any way of being able to—I mean, I know you can be pastoral when churches want to leave and they feel like they can't stay anymore, but is it important to say the United Methodist Church needs to remain or people need to remain in it and we need to figure out how to get to a place of, of being able to deal with our differences? Or how, how, do I, how do I take as an ordained pastor or express my commitment to this whole commitment that I've made in ordination, to be accountable, to be submissive, under the authority, accepting supervision in the United Methodist Church, when there's all these other things now, GMC and WCA, and well, WCA is not a denomination, but it's almost like, it's almost like so many people have said you have to be committed and obedient to the book until... It doesn't work for me anymore, and then I can't. I, I've never, I've never done a same-sex wedding. Never had one in a church that I've served. I've told our staff here that we are going to go by the Book of Discipline. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, I, um, but I mean, and and I probably have people on staff that would like to do different, um, as far as it relates to um, same-sex marriage or whatever. Since so I guess what I'm asking is, like, to be accountable to the United Methodist Church, how important is it that we work this out within the United Methodist Church versus splitting the whole thing? 
well, I would love to work it out so that we could all stay together. And I began serious conversations five years ago uh, with leaders on all sides of this issue looking for a way to keep it together. Uh, about three years ago, I came to the conclusion it's not possible uh, because the deep commitment of progressives to their version of justice meant they were going to continue being disobedient. And so the accountability structures of our church are now breaking apart big time. Uh, people who are sworn to uphold it, elders like yourself, bishops like me, uh, annual conference boards of ordained ministry, uh, they have said, we're not going to follow the discipline anymore. Uh so that the tra trajectory for the United Methodist Church appears to be uh, moving in a more progressive way regardless of the cost and whatever it takes in order to do that. Uh, I'm told that many Episcopal candidates or people who've been endorsed for the Episcopacy have, as part of their interview, said, we're not going to enforce the discipline on these things. And yet you're being consecrated. But that was a part of the protocol. People don't know there was this protocol of reconciliation that was this amicable separation. Right. You were not a part of this. It was a negotiated, mediated settlement right. that um, people who have declared that they're going to be a part of the GMC have very much promoted, wanted it to pass, encouraged everyone to pass it, Right. have said this is very, very important. And within that was an abeyance of charging people uh, if they do same-sex marriage or things, was it not? That was included in the protocol, but the protocol never passed and was just a proposal. I, I think the—I <clean> mean, I, I, I've, I've always been—struggled with this because, you know, I mean, I, I kind of—for me to go by the rules is important. I don't go by every rule. No one goes by every rule. But, but on these, I have, you know, I figure this is, this is what I've signed up for until it gets changed. This is what we need to honor. This is how we need to, um, to, to move through this. But I understand, though, how, what would you, if you want to call it um, civil, uh, civil disobedience, for example, if you believe a law is unjust, you have the right to go to protest the, the difference, the way I understand civil disobedience, Martin Luther King Jr. knew this very well, there's a cost. He's, that's why we get letters from the Birmingham jail. He went to jail. He was willing to go to jail. He was willing to pay a cost uh, for the disobedience. But I think what's been difficult is people are mad because there's no cost for disobedience. Or people in our society, I don't think anyone wants to pay a cost for civil disobedience anymore in our society as a whole, but in the denomination. Um, I think that they're, I think when they look at same-sex marriage, they see it as a justice issue. So I, I, try to, I try to put myself in both sides of the conversation. And that's that, crucial. That's that a makes way of sense caring to me. for each yeah, other. That yeah. makes sense to me. Sure. That they see this as someone can be legally married in the state. There's, you know, I, I, I know someone, uh, couple, their daughter got married in the church. Son can't get married in the church. Son's probably not going to want to get married in the church because of what the church has said about him as a, as a homosexual man. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing I find interesting too, is that we don't have a lot of um, gay people that want to come to church based on how we've treated LGBTQ people. At Chapelwood, you mean? No, at 
in the church, like in the United States. I think there's been a lot of harm of, of churches basically telling people that they're a mistake. I don't believe God makes mistakes. Well, I think the, the crucial part... Now, that doesn't mean of, that everything you do is okay, but I don't think anyone should ever be called a mistake. I think the crucial part of this separation that's coming is to free up congregations that want to be doing same-gender marriages and uh, affirming uh, people of different sexual orientations and gender identities to free them up to be the kind of church they want to be at the same time that the churches who see scriptures differently uh, need to say, we're going to welcome LGBTQ people, but not affirm them in doing same gender marriages. Freeing up different United Methodists to be different expressions of Wesleyan Christian strikes me as the direction we're headed. The question is, can we do that separation as amicably as possible? And could we have done it while remaining together? The, the missional strength of a denomination is going to be peeled away. There's no split. question. We're if going we to could have strength. remained together, and you, you had—I think you had some sort of a connectional—I forget all the names—some connectional plan that kept the denomination together, but had some unique way that the different theological pieces could meet. And then there's actually a. a so the Christmas uh, Covenant, is that what it's called? The Christmas Covenant is, is a plan from people from the central conferences, which everyone assumes, you know, are going to be the most conservative. I don't, I don't think they're one uh, monolithic theological uh, group, but they've provided, because they realize the missional strength of the church is better when we stay together. Well, that uh, Christmas Covenant assumed that all of America would be under one plan, and you would allow some variation in other places. Uh, I've struggled and wanted to find a play, way to keep us all together, John. The poem by William Butler Yeats is really resonating in me. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. It's breaking my heart, but that idea of holding everybody together and I can give you detailed reasons why it won't work, it just no longer that center position of keeping us together uh, is rapidly disappearing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I have a hypothesis. I could be totally wrong. I think the vast majority of United Methodists in the United States are compatibilists on this issue. I'm a traditional compatibilist. That's, they, people say we don't exist. There's a lot. There's a lot. I think in the southeast and south central particularly people who believe and and I think when you're a, when you're on a more traditional spectrum I think it's also fair that people look both ways to say okay if I'm going to understand how someone who can read the scripture all right and and make an accommodation if you will for same sex marriage as we have made accommodations for divorce and remarriage mm -hmm. which we've already done mm -hmm. to me is the most comparable apples to apples comparison of 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 what we're talking about in the same way, when someone has a more traditional position, they shouldn't be yelled at by the other side as, oh, well, you're closed-minded and you're whatever, because are, here's two people who read scriptures as faithfully as they can. They're trying to follow Jesus, but they're in different places. And my thought is, why can't those people be in community together? That's what we talk about here at Chapelwood, is that we can be in different positions. We don't have to agree with each other. We don't even have to condone of each other's interpretation but we can live together. We can be in ministry together. We can be in mission together. 
Well, that's actually what's happened for the last 50 years under the doctrinal teaching of marriage is one man and one woman. When you begin to change that, uh, that's what makes it harder because you then push the envelope continually in a progressive direction, and that's what the conservatives say But I would argue the same, thing, the same thing was done with divorce and remarriage in the beginning of the 20th century. We were forbidden to be able to remarry people who had been divorced unless right. they were the innocent party. That was right. in the book of discipline. Right. All right. We were forbidden. So unless, uh, unless your spouse committed adultery and left you, or your spouse was an unbeliever and left you, which is what Jesus makes clear, if you get remarried, you're committing adultery. There's no statute of limitations on that. It's not like, okay, well, I've asked for forgiveness, so I'm good now. But the discipline changed and said, hey, people can get divorced. It happens. And it doesn't mean that they can't get remarried. That's not what the Bible says. Well, you know, John, I've been encouraging you to develop disciplinary proposals to reflect that centrist position. Uh, so far, I don't see that as a likely outcome, and so we've got to figure out a way. I've already told you uh, that I'm really mad at you because you've actually made me start reading the book of discipline. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Are you willing to run for bishop, John? I no. think that's a possibility here. No. Yeah. You 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 are studying the book of discipline. You could be the leader no, to take happen. my place in the Texas Annual Conference. No, thank you. It's a hard no. It's a hard right, no. Let's talk okay, about I'll, let's talk I'll about something for the people who are even deeper in the weeds. Right? Let's talk about something that's kind of hot on the hot plate right now. Uh, you believe that an annual conference can disaffiliate as a whole from the United Methodist Church. It's not just my belief, that's the ruling of the Judicial Council. Yes. Well, I, I think the... Um, so you use this uh, Judicial Council ruling, right? But it's a ruling based on a paragraph that was never passed and is not in the Book of Discipline. No, it's, ba it's applied to the evaluation of such a paragraph, but it's a ruling about church law. They have issued two memoranda last month that reaffirmed that same approach in interpreting the church law today. So now the bishops, the Council of Bishops, have asked for clarification on this to they get have. some guidance because it seems to me... Um, we're in, if, if you thought the chaos has been bad for the last 50 years, if you don't have a process by which a conference can disaffiliate, which we don't have a process, then you're going to run into all the practical implications of this thing. So is, are you just, every conference can make up their own process? Well, fortunately, the Judicial Council has docketed the request for a declaratory decision for arguments in April and then, I presume, a decision in uh, early May. And we ought to have some clarification about what that uh, interpretation of the discipline really looks like. So it's possible they could—my thought is, just like any Supreme Court ruling or Judicial Council ruling— they're going to rule something, and it's going to be just muddy enough to create greater confusion. Please, no. <laughs> I think that's going to happen. Do I really do. I think so. You've I, become I a student of judicial council decisions, too? No, John, you're no, really I'm deep just, into I'm, this. I'm it's going great, I'm man. A cynic. Stay with it. I think they're going to say, yes, they're going to say something like, oh, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's not expressly prohibited, you know. And then they're going to have all this other stuff in there that's going to muddy the waters. I'm just guessing. All right, so let's, we'll, we'll make a little wager. You, you think Judicial Council is going to say, yes, conference can disaffiliate. 
That's what they've already said. That's that's an easy bet. I think they're going. I think it it is that what they've said. But I think the questions that are asked are when they come back. There's going to be some things in there that are going to be um, what do you call it? Little wrenches in the system that are going to not make it as easy as just having a vote. Oh, I didn't say it would be just as easy. At the moment, if you take what they've said so far, it's a majority vote and the annual conference figures out its own process. Well, not necessarily. The conference can determine the threshold of the vote. That's true, but it's a majority vote to determine the threshold. Uh, And so as an annual conference chooses, as the basic unit of the church, uh, it gets to make up its own way of doing things. Um, yeah, they were clear on that. You can determine the vote, the agenda, the business, and the debate. Right. But there's, but what's, what's interesting to me is the whole process issue, I think, is very confusing. And it says in the ruling, let me ask your position on this. It says that if a subject matter is not expressly limited in paragraph 16 or elsewhere in the Constitution, blah, 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 as long as the annual conference doesn't overlap the powers of general conference. That's right. You can't do that, because once you do that, you're out. Well, it cannot. The General Conference has the right to regulate this action, but it has not done so. And so in the absence of General Conference action to regulate it, the annual conference is self-regulated. What if they come back and say, it's legal, but the General Conference has to have a process of regulating it? That would be a possible answer, in which case it won't happen. That's what I mean about muddy. I'm putting my money on that one. (laughs) That's going to be mine. Well, there are, there are uh, judicial council uh, decisions, particularly from the past, that have imported into the Book of Discipline the process regulations that nobody could find in the Book of Discipline. But they said these process regulations are implied. So if the judicial council goes that route, they might find some implied processes. This particular general judicial council, though, operates with what I regard as a strict constructionist route. Uh, route. They tend to actually read the text and stick to it pretty carefully. And there's nothing there that says there's a process that they could import into it. So, the general... You haven't f- told me what the wager is. Are we talking dinner someplace? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's going to be yeah? dinner. It's going to oh, be real good. expensive. You, unless I you lose. You have great restaurant choices. No, if you lose, I get to choose the restaurant. <laughs> that one we canes. went to before was Chicken delicious. Fingers. Chicken right. fingers. So Chick-fil-A? The, the, it says in, in 16, right? The, the, first, the very first thing, that the power of the general conference. Right. Defines, fixes, conditions, privileges, duties of church membership. Yep. If an annual conference votes to disaffiliate, do they take every United Methodist member and redefine and change their church membership? Well, they remain members of their local church. And I think the question of how do local churches follow their annual conference is something that I hope the Judicial Council will rule on this spring. So if an annual conference votes to disaffiliate, do they not just automatically take all the churches with them? That's the default idea, but we'll find out what the Judicial Council says. We'll see. We'll see. We have to see how it plays out. You know, when we were going through Hurricane Harvey, we got pictures of a very chaotic weather situation. Mm -hmm. And so the best that the newscasters could say is, it's chaos out there. Well, that's an accurate description. 
So when I give people accurate descriptions of the United Methodist Church and say, it's chaos out there, that's accurate, but it's not very I comforting. Don't think, I don't think we know. I think there's a lot of debate. People have <clears throat> opinions on how they interpret these things, but there's one group that's going to actually make the decision. That's exactly right. And so you and I can go back and forth all we want. It just seems like to me, if, if an annual conference votes to leave and it leaves, I, I, in the protocol, there's a way, there's a process defined. That's right? true. All the churches go, and if you don't want to go and you want to remain United Methodist, here's what you do. There's no process for this. That's why I think it's going to be problematic, because you've got churches that are United Methodist and members that have joined the United Methodist Church. And if an annual conference disaffiliates, they, by definition, redefine the conditions, privileges, duties, fixings of... I mean, even if they have the same vows, it's still a redefinition of the church membership. It seems like to me you can't... We, the United Methodist Book of Discipline is real big on due process, right? Mm -hmm. Following the American legal system. And to actually just take a church and all of its members without their ability to have some sort of due process to make a decision locally in the church seems to me to be... I don't. For me, that's patently. I unfair. think you ought to write a brief to the judicial council. That's Make a this hard argument no to as them. well. <clears throat> um, so you recently said, well, no, it's, I'm not going to talk about that because that's. I think the same thing. It's like I don't think we know. Um, I, I I find it very difficult to envision. The whole thing is about you know in the United Methodist Church we have trust clause, so the churches. Uh, hold the property in trust, and the annual conferences are the ones that hold the property. They are the legal entity that holds They hold the, the trust, the not trust. the property. Well, they hold the trust, yeah. Right. And so by virtue, if an, uh, a, a United Methodist Church couldn't just all of a sudden say, we're going to be Baptist tomorrow without there being some real problems with the, the trust of the property and everything else. According to our book of discipline, yeah. Yeah. So in the same way, it, it's like this is where you get into the, the nuance kind of problem of thinking, well, how does this redefine membership? How does it redefine the property? How does it, all these sorts of things seem to me to be. John, when I teach people about this, I say you have to think in two different trajectories. One is, what does our book of discipline say? And my goal is to follow the book of discipline and uphold it, enforce it, all that as a bishop. There's also the question of secular legal uh, issues. Uh, what happens if this goes to a district court? Um, and unfortunately, we've got lawsuits already going on in um, multiple places, some in uh, North Texas, some in uh Wisconsin, some in Missouri, where people have decided to resolve this in a secular legal fashion. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in minimizing litigation and blessing all my churches. And so figuring out how you do this, that's why we in the Texas Conference have officially approved principles of disaffiliation that so far have worked pretty well, some going progressive, some going conservative, some going non-denominational. And our conference, to be fair to you, has not, I don't think, and we've had churches that have disaffiliated for, uh, on the conservative side, and churches that have disaffiliated on the more progressive side. Right. And I don't feel like the conference or you have been overly penal 
Um, Overly? I think I've been gracious. No, no, that's what I'm saying. The point I'm making is I don't think it's... I, I mean, you have to do what you have to do. I mean, there's a pension liability buyout and there's a right. apportionment payment buyout. There's certain. What I'm saying is we. it's not like we've gone and go, oh, by the way, we're going to up the ante, which the Judicial Council said you could do. You can, and some of my colleague bishops and conferences have done that, and that's causing litigation. Yeah, and I, but I, I just wanted to say I think it's important for people to know this conference has not done that that way. No, we have worked hard at being gracious and respectful and helping people get where they need to be. All right. So now that I just blew some smoke up your rear, let me ask you a hard one. You, there are people that believe that you helped to write the new GMC Book of Discipline. You and I have talked about how you say you're willing to help anybody. How do you, how do you talk to people who look at that and say, wow, that's a a really biased or a move that you shouldn't make as a United Methodist bishop to help or construct um, a, a splinter or a splinter off denominationals polity book of discipline. What's, what, what do you say to people who say, I got a real problem with that? You're the first person to ask me that directly. No, yes, I know. you are. Uh, I know what people are talking about. Well, you can but, clarify. Uh, you know, my answer is that I have been involved in lots of conversations with all sorts of groups on all sides of the spectrum. I'm trying to help people get where they need to be in accordance with my two principles of blessing all the churches and keeping the Texas Annual Conference together as much as possible. Uh, I don't reveal everything that I've talked to various people about, but uh, I have been involved in conversations to try to raise the level of the conversation in a variety of places. Have you helped um, or have people asked you to help with resolutions or um, what's the other term the, for conference disaffiliations? I have been in conversation with some people about that. I have not been involved in drafting them or writing them. Uh, but when people ask me, how do I do this well, I try to help them because the annual conference needs to have high quality proposals. I tell you, John, one of the things that's really made me angry in the last five years is the number of poorly worded, vague proposals coming from people who ought to know better. Uh, the quality of the conversation has not been good enough to raise the level to where it really needs to be to do this kind of work. Um, and so I hope if any resolutions come that they're well-worded and have a lot of thoughtful, careful work behind them. Well, if you're looking at them, they will be. Well, I, not everybody listens to my input, so when I give them advice, they sometimes ignore it. Well, we won't go there. Well, we can, you know, as bishop. Sometimes people think the bishop controls a lot of stuff. I'm actually uh, uh, an influencer more than an authority figure. But do you, you do you get, do you understand why people would hear you say you've looked at resolutions for disaffiliations or you help with the GMC Book of Discipline? You see how some people would look at that and be troubled by that? Of course. But then I'm trying to help. This is a conference that has uh, a lot of people in a lot of different positions. Mm -hmm. My loyalty primarily is to lead the Texas Annual Conference so that the Wesleyan witness is as strong on the other side of this split as it is as it can be. Uh, and so I really want feel like my calling is to be the bishop of the Texas Annual Conference, all of it. So does the does a conference disaffiliation 
All right, so a local church can disaffiliate two ways. Either, and the paragraph numbers, people are going to just be so fall. People are going to use this podcast to fall asleep. This is going to be the insomnia. Uh, this is going to be the insomnia cure podcast for people. Sort so of like the books I've written. If you've even if you've even made it to this point and heard that joke, you are a sad person. Um, so a, a local church can can disaffiliate two ways. Does a conference disaffiliation in some ways have to mirror that type of a process, or it doesn't have any process at all? So, you know, 2548, it can go, a local church can disaffiliate to join another evangelical or Wesleyan or whatever denomination. Yes. And 2553 was one that was added that if, if for conscience sake, you feel like you need to go, right? you can go. Right. Um, does a conference have to follow that process since local churches are involved in it, or does a annual conference just to get to do whatever they want if they decide to this The annual conference is the basic unit of the church, and we'll get clarity about the process from the Judicial Council. See, another muddy one. I'm going to be right on this bet. I have a feeling I'm going to be right on this. <laughs> the reason I ask that is because in, the, in, those, in those processes for a local church, you know, one has to have a two-thirds vote. The other has to ask for they, they both have to ask for it. It right. It, there's the no annual s- conference decides in both of those cases. Yes, and but the local church initiates. The local church initiates and asks for it to happen. Right. And so, this to me seems the opposite. It's like you're going to have all these churches that are not asking for this to happen, and it, but it will be. Remember, the annual conference is the basic unit. I understand. Of the church. I understand. But you got all these other. That's the. the this is the thing when I say. Uh, or you know, organi- I'm an organizational guy, right? So I'm looking at this and, and does that mean you're it, an institutionalist? I'm, yeah, I'm an institutionalist. All you can right, use it if you want. Yay! Um, I, I'm, no, I'm I'm an organizational guy. I mean, it's so it's like without a process, um, I, it, my brain gets fuzzy. When we were in Indianapolis talking about the that was sort of the precursor to the protocol, right? And there was a group that came in and goes, "We're just going to dissolve the United Methodist Church. We're just going to start by dissolving it, and then we'll start from scratch these new things." And I'm like, "Yeah, you can't do that." That's what I mean about vague, stupid <laughs> ideas coming from people who ought to know better. Yeah, I was like, "You can't." And we argued for like the first half of the day, which is dissolution, dissolution. And then even when we came out with the idea, everybody was mad because they said we're dissolving the Methodist Church. You can't dissolve the Methodist Church. You cannot kill this thing. Right. It's going to remain. Right. It's going to be like out there forever. Uh, so, yeah, so we don't know how church, we, we don't know yet, like the process. We don't know what it would look like. We don't even know what a resolution would look like. We don't even know if it's possible. We don't know if churches automatically have to go or if they want to remain United Methodist, how they go about it. All we know is if a local church wants to go, we have a process. We do. And they can look that up and follow along and. They could start that tomorrow if they wanted to. Let's be clear. So far, I have not received any resolution about disaffiliation. So there's a deadline of March 29th for something to be on our agenda easily. Uh, We'll see if one comes in. Well, and I'm on the conference leadership team as well. So when that comes in, we'll we'll look at it. Absolutely. Just like we've looked at all of the others. Um, All right. So we're not going to get much more clarity on conference disaffiliation but I do appreciate you answering, you know, um, those questions. All right, so here's another big controversy: is the Council of Bishops supposedly? I don't know how much you can share or not. 
are talking about having a jurisdictional conference. Now, see, this is just, I can, I, all I can do is think about people who are not United Methodists going, what in the hell are any of these words? What are they talking about? Didn't that group Paragraphs tune out of this podcast 15 like, minutes yeah, oh, they're, ago? They're, I told them, I go listen to last week or right. two weeks. Something, I mean, something spiritually no. uplifting. So a jurisdictional, we, we're, we're built around, you know, there's the local church. Then there's the annual conference. Then there's a jurisdictional conference, which are regions in the United States. There's five. Uh, then there's central conferences outside the United States uh, that annual conferences are a part of. And then there's the general conference, the legislative body, the, the United States Congress, the House and the Senate of the United Methodist Church. And the Council of Bishops, who are the executive branch, are have they, have they already decided to have a jurisdictional conference? Can you say or can you not say? Or do we know? Has it been decided? Uh, here's what I'm allowed to say at this point. Ooh, breaking news. Go ahead. I'm not sure that it's breaking, but it's uh, all I'm allowed to say. I just wanted to there, make that is, there is conversation within the Council of Bishops about calling a regular session of the jurisdictional conference sometime this year. Uh, they have asked the Judicial Council for a decision on whether such an action is permissible or not. Okay. So there's another thing we get to wait three or four months on to get a muddy answer. Right. And I'll tell you, there's a personal side to this. If they hold a regular session of jurisdictional conference, I retire. And a new bishop is assigned to serve the Texas All right, Annual So that conference. was my follow-up question. So first off, why... There are certain groups within our denomination that the idea of having a jurisdictional conference in the summer or this year to elect new bishops, there are some people who think that's the worst thing ever in the world. Some people think that's the best thing ever in the world. What is the issue? Why are people so incensed about the, the possibility of a jurisdictional conference happening? And then we'll get to how it affects you personally. Well, first of all, let's talk about the reason that the council might call one. There is a section in the Constitution that says there shall be a continuation of the episcopacy. This was put into place in 1968 to talk about the bridge from the Methodist and EUB churches into the United Methodist Church. And so the Constitution makes reference to continuation. Right now, because we did not hold jurisdictional conferences in 2020, there are some bishops who are serving multiple areas and some retired bishops who have come out of retirement to cover areas because people retired for vocational reasons. Or they get in trouble. Well, there's one such case, but <laughs> I'm really I talking... Help myself. That's recent. Go ahead, continue. Uh, in our jurisdiction, you've got uh, three bishops who are serving extra territory. Um there is a sense that that's hard, and therefore it's unsustainable, and therefore they're justified in calling a special session. The Council of Bishops a year ago read the discipline and said, we can't hold a regular session and elect bishops. As this uh, difficulty of bishops serving multiple areas has become more real, they've gotten a different opinion and now believe they can call one. But they decided to ask the Judicial Council first, have we, in this new version of our interpretation, have we gotten to a place where we can call a regular session of the Judicial Council? Is it regular or conference? special? You cannot elect bishops and assign them at a special session. 
It has to be a regular session. Regular sessions are called by a vote of the Council of Bishops, and all five of them meet at the same time. So that was the discussion, and uh, actually it was Tuesday morning of this week when we looked at it and held that conversation that I referred you to. Right, and so why would—so there, there's a, a, the, the legal aspect of can they do it or not do it. Why are people so polarized about the possibility or of it happening or not happening? I mean, there's the legal, okay, for you, I think that's— in every, in every annual conference, there are people who love their bishop and want to keep him or her, and people who uh, would rather have a different bishop than the one they've got. And so as this controversy about the future of the denomination has come, people who are interested in seeing their bishop changed are all in favor of electing new ones and assigning them. Uh, people who want to keep their bishop uh, are opposed to that, saying we want to hang on and not make a decision until 2024. So you don't think it's a theological issue, that people are afraid— well, like the more, more traditional you, supporting bishops would have to retire and they would elect more progressive. You're leaders. a delegate. You probably are involved in conversations that uh, have a theological bent to getting some bishops out and getting some new bishops in. Uh, I'm not going to speculate on a podcast about that. Now, you personally, if there is a jurisdictional conference this year, what does that do for you? Well, the rules are that... Uh, I well, first of all, I turned sixty-eight in May of this year. Congratulations! Uh, thank you. I have to retire at the next regular se session of the jurisdictional conference. So for me, I could be retired. With the rate we're going, you could work another twenty years. We well, <laughs> no, I, presumably there will be one in twenty twenty-four, which was my anticipated retirement date. But uh, if they hold, I could be retired. Uh, August 31st of this year or December 31st of this year if they hold a special session during this, I mean, a regular session during this calendar year. Are you ready to retire? Well, I think I have eight more years of service to Christ uh, in me before I quit working. Uh, the question is, uh, is anybody going to pay me and where will I be doing it? People are good with working for free. They are, and I say to my clergy when they retire, there's no retirement from discipleship. On the other hand, uh, there may be opportunities. Now you say you, you'll be 68, and you've yeah. got eight more years. Is mandatory retirement 72 still? Well, yeah, but uh, I, I can work something. as a retired person. There are bishops in residence who are retired and uh, still teaching at seminaries, working in local churches, uh, might even find a nonprofit that wants me. Bishop in residence. That's what they call it, yeah. Gosh. <laughs> they, yeah. That's there what, was one at Perkins School of Theology oh, when we had I was Emory. there. Yeah, sure. We had, we had an Emory. Probably at Emory, too. We did. We always had a bishop in residence. Yeah. And Desmond Tutu came on for a while. See? I could like follow him. Yeah, you could follow him. You two are just alike. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really... I mean, I... I it strikes me that the reason the jurisdictional conference and whether it happens or not seems to be seems to me as I just pay attention a trigger for people because like for some reason if it's going to happen that's going to trigger certain things for them to try to uh, move an exodus faster 
And I think it's because, and I think that's primarily in certain conferences that are afraid they're going to get a more, you know, you know, I have deep ties in both South Georgia conference and Texas conference. You now. do. And you're a homeboy here <clears throat> now in Houston. I, I, I consider myself a Texan now, but I will say just in whether I'm right or wrong, I'm just going to say it. I think the fear in those two conferences from people who are on the more conservative side is that they're going to either get, um, you know, a, a bishop that they don't agree with that's not going to help their cause. And I think the same is true in Texas. You know more about that than I do, John. That's not true. I don't, I don't believe that. Um, well, have I asked you any hard questions yet? <laughs> They're all hard questions. Welcome to my world. Well, I mean, I, I, I do agree. There are certain things that you don't know what are going to happen. Um, if the church splits, so let me ask you just as we type, if the church splits, where do you go? Serve Jesus. Yeah, I understand that. You can serve Jesus at Walmart greeting people. No, I don't think so. I think no, I'm can. a preacher and teacher of the gospel, which, and I will find some place to preach and teach. Where do, where do you land? Like, what, what denomination do you land in? Do you know yet? I think, you know, my job is to lead the Texas Annual Conference in the best way I possibly can, and what comes after that, we'll find out when the options become clearer. You know, I, I've, I've told you pretty clearly I'm a, I consider myself a traditional compatibilist. I have not found... Um, I think that there are some artificial polarities because the people in the polarities have the loudest voices, make the most noise, cause the most disruption. I still believe that the vast majority of United Methodists value the contrasts of the center. Like you said, that extreme or radical center. That's been my experience personally. Now, um, so I plan to remain in the United Methodist Church. Uh, to me, I don't see this issue as being one. I think splitting the church hurts our mission. I think it harms us. I think it devastates us, honestly. And um, we already don't have a great rap as the church, not United, just United Methodist, but the church in America. We didn't perform real well the last two years in a lot of issues around race, race and politics and pandemic. Um, and I think that might be one of the reasons why a lot of people are not coming back to church like they were before, because they look at the church and they're like, if this is the best you got, this is the witness you're going to be, I really think I want to be a part of that. Well, my passion is making disciples of Jesus Christ and transforming the world, and I intend to be offering myself for that purpose All right, as let me long ask you as I can. Uh, off script, because um, I thought about this. If there is a denomination that is built on doctrine, and yet you have a weak or almost non-existence or perfunctory episcopacy. How does that work? I've always thought if you are a church that's really built on doctrine, you got to have a hierarchy that's pretty strong. So reason the Catholic Church, you know, they have these, like, no women priests. It's not like somebody somewhere can just go, yeah, well, I think we're okay with women priests. You know, no same-sex marriage. <laughs> no contraception, you know, you understand what I'm saying? It's like they have these rules, and as society changes, people go, well, why can't we alleviate that? It doesn't mean there's not Catholics who want to see it alleviated, mm -hmm. but it, it, holds, it holds the ground because they've got a pope. Right. So how does a, how does a church that's built primarily on doctrine exist with a weak episcopacy? 
uh, that's a pretty hypothetical question, and I don't know quite what uh, how to answer it. Well, I mean, like, we have our bishops in the United Methodist Church. Bishops have a lot of power. In some ways, we do, and some we don't. Well, I think y'all have a lot of power. I think you have too much power. That's one of the reasons why people want to form a new denomination. I know. I, I I just think that in what I see in some other denominations, whether it's Free Methodist or whether it's uh, potentially the Global Methodist Church, the way the episcopacy is defined and outlined as far as the duties, they're really more teachers and don't really have as much. It doesn't seem like to me that there's as much power in the office as there is in like Episcopalian churches or United Methodist churches or Catholic churches. That's just a, a wild hair I throw out there well, as I look at it. There's a lot of truth to that, and I have been blessed to be a part of a church under bishops. Uh, I felt that way when I was a pastor and moved uh, three times to do what my bishop asked me to do. Uh, I have come to believe that the United Methodist Church has weakened its episcopacy considerably, and the questions of accountability are, are very real. So I'm not sure. So we that have we an have executive what branch, we have about. a legislative branch, we have a judicial branch, but we don't have a standing army <laughs> or a police force. <laughs> right. No. What I mean, well, though, what I mean, though, is a, if, if you're, if, if, like, for example, uh, all right. So let me ask another wild question. I'm off script now. So well, let me go this, back. This, to, this will be in the extra, the end credits. Let me go back to your standing army. Yeah. The bishops are the enforcers of the general conference, and when the bishops fail to do their duty, the whole thing falls apart. Well, that's where we are today. Yeah, and so it was been a, several years ago now where. Uh, Bishop Oliveto was elected in the Western jurisdiction. She is in a, a marriage with same-sex partner. Mm -hmm. It went to the Judicial Council. They said the election basically illegal, and it needs to be remedied. But who remedies it is the Western jurisdiction, right. the, the, the bishops of the Western jurisdiction. I don't know if they gave them a timeline like to work it out, but... There's no enforcement, but it's not just that. It's also bishops in the north central and northeastern jurisdictions that uh, have deliberately violated the Book of Discipline, and nothing happens. Yes, and that's where I think you know we ha we have that's where the struggle is. That's where we have to figure a way to work this out. Um, but I don't know. So the other question: Why why can't the is the global Methodist Church going to be the only option if, a, if, if, if the Texas Annual Conference has a resolution to disaffiliate? Is that the only option? That's the only place you can go? Why couldn't we become free Methodist? If somebody suggests an, uh, a resolution for that, that's a, certainly a possibility. Why couldn't we become an independent? Um, why couldn't we just be our own thing? You could. Really? Write your resolution. I might be interested in the bishop thing if we could be our own thing. Could you? Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm going to talk about that. Possibilities. No, I'm not kidding. So, yeah, I mean, it's like when you're, when you're talking about one option, the other thing I don't like is the idea that this thing may happen in two months, that we may have to have a vote. That doesn't, that also makes no sense to me if it happens. I don't know that it will. I don't know that it's going to be allowed, but even if it does, whether it's in May or even if it was in August and you had a vote to disaffiliate, I know there are several conferences that are looking at these types of resolutions for their annual conference in June. That's not that far away. I don't know how you, I don't know how you even communicate to, how many United Methodists do we have in this conference? Roughly a quarter million. Yeah. 
quarter of a million people. And how many of those people think have any idea that the conferences might disaffiliate and leave the denomination? Not enough. I don't think many. I, I think it all kind of follows the pastor. If the pastor is all losing their mind over all these things, you know, I have a, a friend of mine who's a pastor, and every meeting they have, he spends about 20 or 30 minutes updating on the United Methodist issues. And so they voted to disaffiliate. And of course, everybody's like, good, we're going to leave because it's all they hear. Right. You know, we're talking about like feeding people and clothing people and I'm, preaching the gospel. And I'm very Let me ask interested. you another question since we're here. Do you think I'm Orthodox? In your basic theology yes. about the creeds and all of that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Do you think I'm an evangelical? Uh, that word is so loaded, I know, I'm not going to answer. But I, I, I mean it to believe. Let's define terms. It's gonna, I believe that having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is a vital and central aspect of what it means to be a Christian. I understand evangelical in its best sense as a high authority of Scripture, uh, a clear understanding of personal salvation, and a high Christology. To have all uh, three of those. That's then in that view. I just don't, I don't like when people say, if you don't go with us, then you're not orthodox evangelical, have a high view of scripture. I think there are a lot of people saying things that are uncharitable and inaccurate about other United Methodists. And I really oppose all of those mischaracterizations. You got to work your side of the street first. I don't know what that means. It's a 12 step thing. <laughs> you know, everybody wants to work everybody at the other side of the street. Right. You got to start by working your side of the street. Right. What question did I not ask you that I should ask you? Um, you ought to ask me if I'm Orthodox. I already know you're Orthodox. Okay. Then you didn't need to ask. No, but I, I'm not worried about you. You don't have you, you don't have a, a, that reputation. <laughs> you know, figuring out people my call reputation. you other things, but that I mean, like they might define you in other ways. But I don't think anybody would say you're not orthodox or have a high view of scripture or evangelical. But what happens is, if you say that you're going to remain, like we were in a meeting in October, I shared this with you. It was over 700, between seven eight hundred people, representing about 250 of the largest 400 United Methodist churches, over 150 young clergy, and 98 percent of the people. We want to keep our doctrinal standards. Mm -hmm. We want to have a high view of Scripture. We believe in orthodoxy and the creeds and evangelical and all this kind of stuff. So I'm hearing all these things that people say about who you are and what you believe if you're not going to leave and go in this direction. And I just think it's a false dilemma. I keep coming back to Catholic spirit as a guideline for me that says I want to mutually, I want to respect people who are on all sides of this issue and bless them. So that if we can't think alike, we can certainly love alike. That's my goal in this whole process. I just think the assumption that every person who is a traditional leaning United Methodist is going to leave the United Methodist Church is a false assumption. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't yeah. suggest that that's the case. I don't know that people, I, I think people have for a while, they kind of assume that you have to, you know, if, if you're this, you have to go this way. And if you're this, you have to go this way. Boy, they're not sad. thinking very deeply or no, talking no, to well, enough people. Yeah, join me. That's what people do. They do. What else, Jeff? Anything else? Yeah. Hey, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Taking time out of your day with all your important meetings. This is my main work for the next six months. Well, good. Well, um, you've given I, me an opportunity to reach a new audience. So thank you. I appreciate it. And I thank you for letting me ask some, um, you know, some hard questions. And Did you I, ask hard questions? 
you told me I ask you a question you've never been asked. Hmm. Okay. Unless you were lying. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that you're a liar. I the last lie I told was forty four years ago. Uh, the last lie I told was probably during this podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being here with us. I'm John Stevens. I'm Scott Jones. And this is Pod Have Mercy. <laughs>